Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of The Bible Breakdown. Excited to move on in our Acts narratives this week. So last week we were in Acts 12, and we talked about Peter's escape from prison. We talked about what his situation was in terms of who was guarding him, what happened. Uh, We also used that as an opportunity to talk about prayer, as the people in the church were praying for Peter during this time that he was imprisoned. And that's kind of where we ended off. So we're going to actually start up right where we left off last week. And we're going to be in Acts 13 and 14 today. So we've got a little more narrative in front of us. And what we're going to be talking about is Paul, who will, at the beginning of this chapter, still be Saul. But we'll see in a couple of verses, he'll change permanently back to Paul, the Paul we know and love. Uh, he and Barnabas are going to go on what we refer to as Paul's first missionary journey. So they're going to be going to several different cities and preaching the gospel and building churches. So we're going to talk about that. Uh, We are also going to really kind of broadly discuss, and I say broadly because we're going to talk about how it affects each of their stops, each of the stops that Paul and Barnabas are going to be on. We're going to discuss how there's difficulties, there's kind of these barriers to the gospel in each of these places. And we're going to look over how God delivered Paul and Barnabas, how God overcame these difficulties. And then at the end, we're going to kind of talk about what does that mean for us and what God is calling us to individually or even as a church. And we're also going to talk about kind of the mission strategy that Paul and Barnabas take up. So excited to talk about all those things. So we are going to be in Acts 13. And just to give some context how this all started, I'm going to start by reading verses 2 and 3. It says, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So the church is gathered in a city called Antioch, Antioch of Syria. So that's going to be important here in a second because there's another Antioch on their stop that is different. And this is a big major uh, city that has come to believe in the gospel. And they're going to send a lot of the missionaries out in this first century, including Paul and Barnabas here. So the people are gathered and they sense the Holy Spirit is telling them that it's time for Paul and Barnabas to go and go on a journey to share the gospel with several different cities in the area. And they're going to cover a lot of ground. They're going to get on a boat and they're going to go to some different regions. Um, So they really spend quite a bit of time, quite a bit of effort. They must have really sensed strongly that the Lord was calling them to this or they wouldn't have undertaken undertaken this task. And that's important, I think, for us as we Think about this was something they felt sure. I mean, it says the Holy Spirit said it doesn't even say they thought maybe it'd be a cool idea if they really obviously it seemed whether it was out loud, the Holy Spirit told them or it was just in total unity and total certainty that they believed the Holy Spirit was talking to them that this was the mission. This was the idea. So uh, the first place they're going to go and you'll see there and starting in verse four, they're going to go to Cyprus. Now, Cyprus is a, a small island in the Mediterranean Sea. And they are going to go there. And John, John uh, the Apostle, is also going to join them for this. And it says they spread the gospel in synagogues throughout the island. So, again, we're kind of still in this middle point where the apostles are still largely starting in kind of synagogues and things like that, even though the mission of the Gentiles has kind of been affirmed in many ways. There's still some 
I don't know if it's a familiarity or they believe this is the place to talk best to Jews and Gentiles, but we see it's still centered around these Jewish synagogues where they proclaim the gospel typically. And so that's what they do. They go throughout the island. Um, these synagogues would typically be made up of what we refer to as the diaspora, Jews that had been spread throughout the uh, Greek empire. And so that's why there's synagogues everywhere, not just in Jerusalem. So that's what they're going to be doing. And uh, while they're doing this, they are summoned to a proconsul. His name is Sergius Paulus, who wants to hear their message. So word must have gotten around uh, proconsul, kind of a, a governmental figure. Uh, they, the word must have gotten around. And he wanted to hear what they had to say. But here's where they arrive at their first difficulty. So they come across this guy. He's a magician. They call him, one of the names given to him is Bar-Jesus, which would uh, mean son of Jesus, whether that is a actual familial situation like Simon. So Simon Peter, he was Simon Bar-Jonah because he was the son of Jonah. Whether this uh, man actually has a father named Jesus, which is possible because Jesus was a fairly common name. Uh, we don't know. Or he may have uh, heard of Jesus of Nazareth and that he may be trying to uh, be associated with him by being bar Jesus and trying to use that for his magic and for people to believe him, I guess. Uh, we also get that he is named Elemus, which, so he's got two names, I guess. I'm not going to make the dad joke that I made last week about the person with two names. So if you missed it last week, God bless you. If you had to listen last week, God bless you even more. Thanks for bearing with me. Couldn't help it. This time I'm going to restrain myself. So anyways, this bar Jesus or Elemis, he opposes the disciples and he tries to basically turn the proconsul away from hearing their message. So the proconsul wants to hear and bar Jesus is trying to get him away from this message. And I assume to rely on him. Uh, maybe he was a, a, an, a person in the court of, uh, of Sergius Paulus. We don't know exactly his meaning, but we know that he wasn't a follower of Jesus, though his name was a little bit confusing in that. So Saul, um, who we get in verse nine, we get Saul, who is also called Paul. Now he's going to be, he's going to be Paul for the rest of the New Testament. Um, he's filled with the Holy Spirit. And basically he, through the power of the Holy Spirit, is going to cause Elemis to become blind. So we get this difficulty where they come across this magician. I assume he could do certain signs that would uh, make people ooh and awe. And Paul shows that God has power over him by causing him to become blind for, it says, for a time. So this, they see this in the, it says the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. So you have to think that he heard their message, saw the that the power they had was true. And for that reason, the proconsul believes. So we see this difficulty immediately arise. Somebody who opposes them, opposes their message. Uh, but God provides a solution. He blinds the magician, showing that he is the one who has the power, and Paul and Barnabas are able to move on. So after they are on Cyprus, they go to the other Antioch. So this is Antioch in Pisidia. So it's an Antioch in a different region, and they are going to go there. John heads home after the little foray into Cyprus, so he is not going to be with them for the rest of the journey. So it's just Paul and Barnabas, at least, that we're going to be are going to be named for us for the rest of this journey. And so after that, and now they're in New Antioch, and this is kind of the longest section of the, of the journey, and you have to think it probably gives us a pretty good idea of what kind of message they were sharing. So Paul is going to preach in the synagogue, and as we've seen many times in Acts so far, he's going to start with a message from the Old Testament. He's going to be 
basically trying to prove the truth of the gospel, the truth of Jesus through the Old Testament, so that the people of Jewish descent, the people who have grown up in Judaism and want to follow the one true God, he's going to give try to give them reasons to believe that Jesus is the fulfillment of the things they've been waiting for. Uh, so in his long little, his long uh, message here, we're going to see that come come uh, through, and we're going to see that take place. And Paul's going to up his name drop game. He's going to go big. So we've talked in several of the uh, podcasts about if you want to get the attention of somebody who is uh, following God through Judaism at this time, you're going to use some of the big names. And in this case, Paul's going to use some big events. So in relative order, I think I got all these in order. He's going to talk about Egypt, so the time they were in slavery. He's going to talk about the wilderness, where they wandered because of their disobedience. He's going to talk about Canaan, the land that God promised to them and delivered to them, especially through Joshua. Uh, He's going to talk about Samuel, one of the greatest prophets. He's going to talk about Saul the king, which I don't think he's just being a crazy narcissist because Saul is also his name. I think he's probably using it to, just from a historical standpoint, to mark the transition from the period of the judges to the period of the uh, monarchy of Israel. I think that's probably why, because it doesn't really fit with the rest of the names in this list. But he mentions them anyway. And then he's going to mention David. Again, big one makes sense. He's going to mention John the Baptist, who... Even though he was a forerunner of Jesus, people had a, and he was so clear about that he was talking about Jesus, that he wanted to make the way for Jesus. A lot of the people in the nation still revered John's ministry, even though they didn't all accept Jesus. So he's still even more recent, though he's more recent, he's a big name. And he was also, um, he was also killed. So I think that probably uh, somewhat of a, somewhat of a martyr. um, And I think that probably also adds to his gravitas if you will and then he's gonna go and he's gonna later on he waits a little while and then he drops the abraham he drops the moses two of the biggest names if you're gonna be adhering to the old testament so he does all of that in his message and then he's gonna kind of the way he's gonna kind of end it and wrap it all up he's gonna talk about uh, some of the psalms so uh in verse 34 it says and as uh and we're in chapter 13 still here It says, and as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Verse 35, therefore, he says also in another Psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. So he's basically using these Psalms to describe how the person to whom these blessings of David will be given and to see that this Psalm, it says you will not let your Holy one see corruption, seeing that David is uh, the writer of the Psalms and often associated with the Psalms, even though he didn't write them all, that he's saying David did see corruption, but there is this Jesus who never saw corruption because he was raised from the dead. So that's kind of the segue that he makes to Jesus. And he also is going to say, in verse 39, and by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. So pointing out that the law of Moses, while it was good, while it pointed people to God, ultimately it did not have a way of getting rid of sins. We talked about it in Hebrews, the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. So he's pointing to Jesus as the fulfillment, the one that can take away sin and could Uh, give us a way to be able to act in obedience and to know God. Whereas the law of Moses 
gave us uh, ways to experience God's grace through faith, but um, was not able to itself take away sin. So then the difficulty that's going to arise, again, it's kind of the grid we're going to look through this journey through. Difficulty arise, the Jews became jealous, uh, even though many received it um, with excitement and wanted them to come back the next Sabbath. Um, during that time, many of the people, many of the Jewish people in that synagogue are going to get jealous and they are going to begin to speak out against them. And so the solution here or the, the way that God turns this for, for good is that Paul and Barnabas are going to then turn to the Gentiles. He says it in verse 45 or 46, he says, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For the Lord has commanded us saying, I've made you a light to the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. So that's how there's kind of, even though they're met with resistance, people are kind of shouting them down in some ways. Paul and Barnabas are going to turn to the Gentiles. And then we see in verse 48, and when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. So even though there's rejection from God's people, from the Jewish people, we see that Paul and Barnabas are able to turn their message to the Gentiles and that the Gentiles, many of them believe. So even in the face of opposition in that synagogue, we're going to see that many people are brought to faith in Jesus through the ministry of Paul and Barnabas there at Antioch in Pisidia. Again, not where they started, but one of the stops on their journey. So as we move into chapter 14, they are going to come to a place called Iconium, and they're going to preach, and many people are going to believe. But again, some uh, people, some Jews are going to stir up this crowd of people against Paul and Barnabas. We see in verse 1 that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believe, but the unbelieving Jews stirred up people against them. So they run into some difficulties. We don't necessarily get a length of time that passes between 1 and 2, but we do see in verse 3 that even as this is going on, it says that the Jews are poisoning the minds of the Gentiles against Paul and Barnabas. It says in verse 3, they remain for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord. And he, it says that they granted, uh, the Lord granted signs and wonders to be done by their hands. So even though they're met with this resistance, so the difficulty is here that um, we see that many Jews oppose them and poison the minds of the Greeks against them. But we see in this instance that even in the midst of that, they are able to stay for a long time. They're able to speak boldly for the Lord. And the Lord granted them signs and wonders to give veracity, to give, um, I guess, credibility even to their to their ministry so that people are able to see that they truly come from God. Uh, and unfortunately, that's not their only difficulty that they're going to face at Iconium. Uh, in verse 5, we see an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat and to stone them. But they are able to escape. The Lord makes a, a way for them, even though people wanted to stone them, which would have likely ended in their death. God makes a way and they are able to escape. And then they're going to go to a place called Lystra and they're going to continue to preach the gospel. So in Lystra, which we see that first starting in verse 8, chapter 14, Paul uh, comes in and it seems like it's pretty close, at least to the beginning of their ministry here. He comes across a man that has been crippled from birth, says he'd never walked. And and Paul is able to heal this man. He's able to get him up on his feet. And he says he sprang up and began walking. People saw what they were doing and they were amazed. So the Holy Spirit working through Paul 
is able to help this lame man walk. However, people don't quite take it the right way. They, being largely influenced by Greek uh, religion and mythology, they say, aha, gods are here among us. They're helping people walk. So difficulty they run into in Lystra is almost the opposite of what they dealt with in Iconium, but it's not really any better for the sake of the gospel. The people start to worship them as gods who've come down. It says they called Barnabas Zeus, which would be, you know, the kind of the top one of the pantheon of gods. And then Paul, because he talked more, was named Hermes, which is a pretty big step down for Paul. It's not Barnabas' missionary journey after all. That's what Paul's saying. I'm sure he didn't say that. That was just me. But people are coming to him. Even the priest of Zeus comes down and they're wanting to like, offer sacrifices to Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas are just like oh, beside themselves. It says they ripped their clothes because they were so upset that people were doing this. And they said, we're just men like you. We're not gods. We're here to point you to the living God. But unfortunately for them, the people are really wanting to still sacrifice to them. Um, and it says, even with these words, they scarcely restrain the people from offering sacrifice to them. We don't get a big, like we don't get a big, and then a bunch of people believed. We'll kind of talk about how that, how we see that happening later on. And then unfortunately, not only again, this difficulty, but here uh, in Lystra, people are actually going to succeed to at stoning Paul. And it says Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. So they uh, they lost track of him for a bit, but uh, they came from these places that Paul had just, and Barnabas had just been. And they stone him and they drag him out of the city, supposing that he was dead, it says in verse 19. It says the disciples gathered around him, but he rose up and he entered the city on the next day, went on his way. So difficulty, people are sacrificing to them. Uh, are trying to. Paul is stoned and left for dead, but God provides a way. Paul survives that stoning, and they're able to move on again to the next city. And what we're going to see, too, as we we move on is that people did come to believe in Lystra as well, even in the midst of that confusion, difficulty, that people are still coming to believe in Jesus. So after they are leave, once they leave Lystra after this, they're going to go to Derbe, um, that's how you say it in Greek. It's not derb. That's what I know. I don't know what the rules are for when you transliterate something from Greek to English. I think you could say derby. It's not derb. That's the one thing I'm, I'm sure of after I looked into it. Uh, in Greek, derbe or derbe. And uh, we'd probably say a derby in English. But they go there. All that to say. And then it says that they made many disciples there. And then guess what happens? They turn on around and they go back the same way they they go back the way they arrived. So now they're going to go back to Lystra, back to Iconium, and back to Antioch, still Antioch, Pisidia here. And it says they strengthen they went strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. I wonder how they thought of examples of that. Hmm. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So what we see is they are going to go back the way they came. And it's not just because it was the most convenient route, because it wasn't. If you look at a map of how they go, they kind of take this line. It kind of curves south through Cyprus, a little stop there. And then they kind of start to make a circle. And then there's some zigzagging too with how they go. But the most sensible way for them to go, they started going 
uh, west. No, I'm sorry. They start. Yeah, they started going west, and it would have made the most sense for them to go back east. But they take the time to go back through, and the reason they go is it says that they wanted to encourage the brothers. They wanted to strengthen the people who had believed in Jesus. And not only that, but they wanted to leave them with long-term solutions in terms of leadership. So it says they appointed elders for them in every church. So they go back, they encourage these other believers, they appoint leadership there. They raise up leaders in each of these churches so that if Paul and Barnabas aren't able to return, that they're in good hands, that they can have people that are leading these churches into what it means to worship Jesus, to follow Jesus, to make disciples uh, in different cities and even continuing in their own city, which is um, a really good example for us and something that we'll kind of talk through as one of our takeaways here. So they go and they do that, and then they're going to go back through uh, Antioch Pisidia. They're going to go to some of the other cities that they went to, they're also going to go to a place called Perga and Atalia, and then they're going to sail back to Antioch of Syria, where they started, and they got to gather the church together and spend a long time with the disciples there. It says they remained no little time with the disciples there, and they got to share all that God had done there in uh, the cities they'd gone, and how it says again that he got, how God had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, which is Again, as we've talked about many times in Acts, this is a this is a process for them. This transition from just people of Israel to people of Israel and people not of the nation of Israel, and um, not following the law, not circumcised, not sense of Abraham, all that stuff. So that's what happens, and it's a obviously a, a long and difficult journey for Paul and Barnabas. But I think what we see is that they have just such incredible perseverance and we get to see a little bit of a a model for what it looks like for missions. We get to see a model for, and I think it applies to both like large scale mission. If you were to go to a different country, and I think it applies even to a very micro scale of mission, even if you're just sharing Christ with your neighbor or a friend or a family member. And I think that's where I want to start away with kind of some takeaways for us here is God's mission for the nations isn't, just get them to believe in Jesus and then you're good. You're done. You don't have to do anything else. God's mission for the nations and the nations, of course, really encapsulate everybody, even if it's just our nation uh, or if it's our nation or if it's the farthest nation you can think of. All of that is part of God's mission. And it's not just a, okay, share Jesus. Oh, they believe. All right. See you later. Figured out. Um, there's a there's a model here that we get that requires not only encouragement, but also the training up of leaders. I think that um, maybe some of you have been on trips of this nature. I feel like I've been blessed to not be on trips of this nature, but um, sometimes it's like a, okay, we're going to go to this new city. We don't, they don't have any sort of church presence. Um, we're going to share the gospel for a week and then we're going to leave. We're never going to come back. And lots of people came to know Jesus and it was really awesome. But then you kind of wonder, if you take time to think about it, what happened after that? What was done for these people's continued growth? Who was encouraging them? Who's, uh, who are their leaders now? Um, there's something to be said for sharing the gospel uh, to people you don't know. Don't get me wrong on that. Or even when there's not a clear place to connect them. You know, you could go to a 
place and let's say you went to Paris and you were sharing the gospel in Paris, I bet you could find yourself a church that was legitimately believed in Jesus that you could connect a person to. But there are going to be places where that's not really reasonable, where there's not going to be a, oh yeah, just go to the church down, down the way. That may not be something that they have, but it's not an excuse to say, well, I guess we have nothing else to, to do here. Um, if I think if we're going to make the choice to share the gospel with somebody or even with a group of people, we have to also be ready to see those people discipled and made into multiplying disciples who are going to make other disciples, um, that it can't be just a, okay, we share this message and then, okay, things are probably going to get hard after this. We should probably leave, but there's got to be this, this method, this desire. There's got to be even some sort of framework for what it means to follow Jesus after that moment where I hear the message and I believe. And sometimes that means planting a church and, staying for a while until leaders are appointed. Sometimes that means connecting people to an established body, but it's a good model for us. And even again, thinking like just person to person, your neighbor, your family member, your friend, even in those cases, it shouldn't be like, well, I shared the gospel with them and they believed it. And so my work is done, but rather that God's call is for us to bring people toward maturity. Even if we're not the one that's fully a part of that process that we're, we're part of helping getting them connected to a system in which they can come to know Jesus better. They can become disciples. So I think this, the fact that even with all the difficulties Paul and Barnabas go through in these different cities that they stop, they don't let that become an excuse to not then return, encourage, appoint leaders in these places. Um, so that when they're gone and when they're unable to come back, which I, I haven't, I didn't run through all of the rest of acts to see which ones Paul's able to come back to, but I mean, you'll notice that there's not, there's not a Lyst- book of Lystra, a book of Antioch, a book of Iconium. Um, we don't, we don't, we know that at least some of these churches are not going to be ones that Paul is going to write to, or maybe even have the chance to visit. Again, I think there's opportunities where he does have to revisit some of these churches, but I didn't look through all of it before I started talking about it. My mistake. But either way, I think the point stands. They appoint these elders in case, I mean, it's the first century. Paul and Barnabas could have died at sea, which Paul is going to be shipwrecked at points. So if he doesn't appoint leaders, he can't guarantee that he's going to be there to continue to bring people along to through to discipleship. So it's just also a, a very practical and a biblical model of raising up new leaders in discipleship. And then I think the last thing I want to talk about, a kind of a takeaway from this is just the this kind of difficulty and solution that we move through at each of these places, we recognize that Paul and Barnabas came across many difficulties. Each, each place had its trouble. We don't really get one for Derby in terms of anything too specific. We just know that people believed there, but all these other places where anything's really mentioned, they come across some significant difficulty. And the reason they're able to persevere is because God took care of them. And ultimately I think they knew that, this was something so certain that God had called them to that difficulty didn't mean they should quit. Remember when we were back at the very beginning, they felt so sure that this is what they should do. They felt that the Holy spirit had come out and told them this. So they knew this is what God was calling them to. And I think that has to be what sustained Paul and Barnabas through this difficult time, these challenges that they faced. And I want to, not that everything in the Bible has to be about us as individuals, but I think it's important that we try to, also apply things that we see in scripture. And I think we have to think of ways we can apply that to our own lives. 
Um, I don't know if you have something in your life or have had something in your life where you felt maybe even similar to what the disciples felt in terms of an assurance of what God was calling you to. I think for me, my, my call to pastoral ministry is something that would fall into that camp. Uh, there have been many times where I thought maybe this is maybe this is not really what I should pursue. Like I'm facing this difficulty. Maybe God's maybe I totally missed it. But I just feel such an assurance from the Holy Spirit that this is a ministry that God's called me to um, to be uh, full time vocational ministry. And I think that is what gives me the the strength to know that even when difficulties arise, I can walk through it. And it can be easy for us, even when we do have those sure convictions, whatever one may be in your life, that we come across difficulties. And as sure as we once felt, we're facing those trials, those difficulties, and we're just not feeling as sure anymore. And I think what we see in this passage is that when we're sure that God's calling us to something, then we have to persevere and we can trust that he's going to make a way forward, even if that is through great difficulty. There are some things that may be more... Uh, ethereal, maybe something I feel like the Spirit's calling me to pastoral ministry. I don't see in the Bible, Blake, do pastoral ministry, for example. But you think about like a marriage, um, we do see in scripture, God's design for marriage, that God does desire for people to become one flesh, um, that God doesn't want marriage to end in divorce. So there are certain things that we even see in our lives that have difficulties, marriages obviously being a huge one, where we see that God is calling us specifically to that institution to persevere in it. But then there's also things I'm sure that each of us have walked through that are a little less certain. But what I didn't want to encourage us all in is if there is something that you feel certain that God's called you to pursue, that whatever difficulties arise, to continue to work through them, to continue to see those obstacles as a way of growing you and training you for whatever God is calling you to and not see it as a sign of his displeasure but if it's something that you're not sure of, maybe that's time that you do look and say, is this something that God's actually calling me to? But this story teaches anything. It's that we need to persevere through what God is calling us to. And ultimately, God is going to be the one who makes a way for it to happen.